0: Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan. This week, in lieu of our regular podcast, we have a bonus interview with art lawyer Nick O'Donnell, who's a partner at Sullivan & Worcester and author of the new book, A Tragic Fate, Law and Ethics in the Battle over Nazi Looted Art. We've already taken a look at Nazi restitution more broadly in an earlier podcast, Uh, if you missed it. That's number 29. Go back and give it a listen. But today we're going to dive deeper into one particularly dramatic case. The saga of Portrait of Vali by Egon Schiele begins in Vienna in the 1950s and spans some six decades before ending up in New York City at MoMA. It's one of the earliest major cases involving the return of Nazi looted art, and its legacy is still felt today as heirs and museums and heirs and states continue to battle in court. But the origins go back well before then. Can you sort of lay the scene? Where does this case really begin? So this case
1: begins really in the 1920s and 1930s. A woman named Leah Bondi had a successful art gallery in Vienna. Uh, the gallery's name was Wüttler and Sons. Lea Bondi was Jewish. And she had this business with, with reasonable success, but after the annexation of Austria by Germany in March of 1938. Things went badly very quickly. After the takeover of the governmental functions by the Nazis in Austria, she was approached by a man named Friedrich Weltz. Weltz was one of the many Nazi functionaries who sprinkled into the town and began to assert themselves, and he had a clear air of authority, for lack of a better word,
0: behind him. And This is a story you kind of lay out in many times in different forms in your book. There's an element of forced sale at play here. What what does Welts actually ask of Bondi?
1: That's right. What what he asks, we we don't have the specifics. This seems to have have happened mostly in conversations. Leia Bondi later would describe it in various ways and testimony. But he essentially seems to have come to her and said, I'd really like to buy your painting, hint, hint. (laughs) And she entered into a transaction. This was very common. One of the things that's important to remember when looking at particularly Austria and Germany, sort of between the Nazi takeover in 1933 and 1938, before Kristallnacht, is the vast majority of these transactions where Jews are targeted do not involve outright confiscations as we would think of them. It's not a matter of somebody knocking on the door pulling everything off, off the wall and threatening or, or engaging in violence. The Nazis consistently went through this rigmarole of, of dressing things up as sails uh, so as to defend them later or, or who knows why, really. So Weltz gets Portrait of Wally by Aegon Sheila, which was a companion piece to a self-portrait of Sheila that he had painted
0: and, and that sort of were intended to hang side by side. So Bondi manages to flee, But the painting remains behind. What happens after she leaves? Where does it go? So Bondi survives, escapes to London. After the war
1: ends, she contacts Friedrich Veltz, who by this point is himself in a bit of hot water with the Allies for being a Nazi. And he is, as many of the art functionaries were, remarkably candid about what he had and where it had come from. It is determined that he has the collections of a number of people, one of whom is Bondi, one of which is the Rieger family. Heinrich Rieger was another collector who was Jewish. The Riegers had a number of paintings, including
0: some Klimts. Why were they so candid uh, with the Allies?
1: I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that many of them didn't really think they had done anything wrong. But two, in a cynical sense, they could see that the Allies were serious about restoring art, at least to its place of origin, and they wanted to appear to be helpful or perhaps to point the finger at
0: someone else. So the collection of another family kind of gets mixed into this dispute, and this is sort of where this confusion, quote-unquote confusion, we can talk about how genuine it was, begins. What happens when the Allies are looking to restitute this painting?
1: So the Rieger collection, which was a few different paintings, gets returned to what's called the Bundesdenkmalamt, which is the newly created state institution to oversee works of art that had been returned by the Allies. The Allies, after the war, went through an enormous effort to identify looted art and to return it to the country of origin. The Allies made a decision not to try to take that one step further and themselves find all of the original dispossessed owners. So the BDA ends up with the collections of Heinrich Rieger, as well as Portrait of Wally, the painting we'll talk about in a minute. The BDA makes a mistake and returns to the Rieger's heirs, Heinrich Rieger having been murdered, Portrait of Wally, not the drawing that had originally belonged to the Riegers. It is at this point that the director of Austria's National Gallery seeks and obtains permission
0: to purchase from the Riegers Portrait of Wally. So it's not entirely clear what happens to the drawing, but essentially the facts that you're laying out are the Allies give the Portrait of Wally back to the Austrians. The Austrians then give it to the wrong person. Right, wrong family, the wrong heirs. The wrong wrong heirs uh, under a different name, even though there's no way to confuse these two works physically. One is a drawing, actually, on paper, and the other one is a painting on wood. Right. And then what happens is those heirs sell that painting to the National Gallery. That's right. One
1: of the other important things that's happening at this point time is Austria does pass a restitution law relatively quickly after the war. But Austria also maintains what are now known as the export prohibitions, which is the right to prohibit certain culturally significant works from leaving the country of Austria. And so what often happened was for heirs or people who survived and who had little interest in returning or spending time in Austria from which they had been chased out, uh, it set up an inherently coercive dynamic again over any possible sale, where the potential buyer, an Austrian state museum, knew full well that the collector did not want to come back and take care of
0: the artwork in Austria, and they had that person over a barrel, so to speak. And that's what happened here. So right now the painting is in, an, in the Austrian National Gallery. Where's Leah Bond? Is she looking to get this work back?
1: At this point, it's not entirely clear what she thinks about the painting's location. But in the early 1950s, she's in contact with a man named Dr. Rudolf Leopold. Dr. Leopold is even by then an acknowledged expert in Sheila's art. He's a collector of it and a connoisseur of it. Dr. Leopold goes to London, and he and Bondi have a conversation about some other works of art, and she asks him if he knows where the portrait of Wally is. He tells her, that it's in the National Gallery, but that it would be impossible to retrieve it.
0: So Leopold says it's impossible to obtain. What does he then do almost right away?
1: Leopold then approaches the National Gallery at the Belvedere directly and organizes a swap for two of his paintings for the portrait of Wally. So having been asked by Bondi for help in locating it and retrieving it, and having told her that it was not possible, he then goes
0: and gets it for himself. So, Leopold gets this painting in the 50s, in the uh, 90s, and then in early 2001, the Austrian state actually builds a museum for his collection. Right. But a little bit before that, in 1997, this is when the drama heats up around this work. The painting is loaned as part of an exhibition to MoMA here in New York. What happens then?
1: What happens is, towards the end of the exhibition, there's an article in the New York Times about the show... Uh, which was devoted to his collection, his remarkable collection of Austrian expressionist art. And the article points out that the painting has a connection to Bondi that seems never to have been resolved. The firestorm sort of ensues at that point. The district attorney in Manhattan, Robert Morgenthau, moves to seize the painting on the grounds that he's uh, asserting that it's something that was stolen and needs to be sorted out. This unleashes a huge furor on all sides of the equation, including a great uproar that the actions by the district attorney were going to interfere with museum exhibitions, that it was going to have all kinds of terrible consequences for the lending of art and all sorts of things.
0: Uh, Well, we'll we'll parse those out in a second, but I just want to read a quote that Leopold says. So the the district attorney serves a grand jury subpoena to secure possession of a painting as stolen property. I mean, just imagine if that happened today, if an exhibition at MoMA, if the DA served them. Be, be explosive this claim in defense uh, some mount this claim that it's actually greed on bondi's part uh that she's trying to get this painting back because it's worth so much and it's worth addressing that point because it comes up again and again and again and leopold who is sort of one to always speak a little caustically uh says they're looking for a way to tighten the laws and on the other hand there is greed now sheila fetches very high prices far more than at the time how do you respond to those sort of criticisms?
1: We do hear this a lot, and, and this comes up a lot in the book in different cases. One will often hear the argument that, well, isn't it interesting that only the valuable pieces of art seem to inspire claims for restitution? And it's a bit of a canard, to put it politely, for two reasons. One is, uh, Wally certainly doesn't move that needle one way or the other because this is a, an issue that was thrust into the public eye really without any action on Bondi's part. And the second is, it is true that like any dispute over money, securities, businesses, whatever, there are points at which litigation is difficult to be economic and that litigating on principle over property of small value is hard to accomplish. But there are also thousands and thousands of works of art that have been restituted and and been discussed and resolved by agreement because they're not worth so much that the parties are able to figure something out in a face-saving way that keeps it out of the newspaper. It is not terribly surprising that the higher-profile ones have been those of higher value. But but more to the point, at this point in 1997, Leopold had no data from which to draw that conclusion because the, the issue was still in its infancy in the
0: modern age. So Leopold's only part of the equation here right now. MoMA is the other part. And they assert... Over and over again, that they're not taking a position uh, in this. And we'll sort of talk about the legalities behind the seizure in a second, but I think it's also worth mentioning that assertion, which actually ends up getting an an NPR reporter fired. So, where does the MoMA say it's standing, and where do you sort of see them standing?
1: Well, MoMA takes the position initially, like, again, it's sort of in any other neutral legal dispute of somebody holding a a piece of property that it's in possession of of an object, that it has a contractual obligation to return to someone, and that this puts it in an untenable position. Now, that's true to a certain extent and certainly in a practical and public relations sense, but from a legal standpoint, that question was going to be sorted out, whether the object should be seized. There really could have been no argument by the Leopold collection that if MoMA were ordered to return the painting or turn the painting over to someone by a court, that that court order would mean that MoMA had breached its agreement. That's not how court orders work, really. But it's certainly a position and a, and a quandary that one can understand from the standpoint of the museum. They're in the business of putting on exhibitions. They clearly never anticipated this. And all of a sudden, you know, they're on the front page of newspapers on, on both sides of the ocean.
0: Yeah, they didn't They did they didn't anticipate it. And they make a, a paperwork mistake or maybe that's a little bit understating it but but we'll get there so that so, the, so uh, leopold and moma fight back against manhattan's da in court what happens so leopold and moma
1: move to quash the district attorney's subpoena pursuant to new york's arts and cultural affairs law which has a provision to immunize from seizure things that have been part of a temporary exhibition the results go back and forth In a couple different rounds, but ultimately the Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York, rules that, indeed, MoMA and the Leopold Collection are correct, that this law prevents the seizure within New York by any authority of an object that's on loan, which this was.
0: So it looks like MoMA and Leopold have won, but then the case takes another dramatic turn.
1: The federal government, which had been watching this with interest, immediately moves to seize the painting under federal authority, and does alleging that the painting is an object that had been imported into the United States by a person with knowledge that it was stolen. And that is something that, in the ordinary course, violates customs law. This is where it gets a little interesting, because there is an analog to the anti-seizure statute that New York has in federal law. But whereas the New York law is self-effectuating, that is, if an object is loaned to an exhibition, it becomes immune from seizure by being loaned, The federal statute, which is called the Immunity from Seizure Act, or IFSA, requires the lender or the borrower to get a certification from the State Department first. And if one gets that certification from the State Department, then it is immune from seizure for any purpose in any action. That didn't happen in this case. Right.
0: That was the quote-unquote paperwork uh, screw-up that I was mentioning earlier, but it's pro- it's a little bit more than that. It's not like they didn't tick a box. They just simply didn't apply for this. And what was their rationale? Why didn't MoMA apply for this? It was a very consequential omission. Yeah,
1: MoMA, at least in the papers, argued that it essentially wasn't widely done enough to be necessary and that the New York statute made it unnecessary. But The New York statute didn't apply and couldn't, under the Supremacy Clause, couldn't override the customs power of the federal government, and so they were stuck in the middle, and they couldn't avail themselves, and the Leopold Collection couldn't avail itself of the IFSA federal statute.
0: What's the key legal question in this case?
1: The key legal question turned out to be whether Leopold knew the painting had been stolen when it was imported into the United States. In a customs case like this, the state of mind of the person who brings the property across our borders is the key. If that person knows the object has been stolen, then they don't get it back, basically. So after all of this initial wrangling over the seizure statutes, which took a few years, the parties got into the exchange of information and documents and depositions and all that sort of thing, and that took a long time. And ultimately, about eight years, eight, nine years after this whole instance had begun, the parties moved for what's called summary judgment, which is they argue that all the facts that matter are undisputed. And so the, the court can draw a conclusion of law. And ultimately, what the court concluded was that it could not resolve the factual record because there were disputes. And the dispute was whether Dr. Leopold had reason to know when the painting entered the United States that there was a claim to it by Leah Bondi. And of course, he did because Leah Bondi had told him herself in 1953 to put a a fine point on it. And so, you know, at the end of the day, what the court ruled was that there had to be a trial in which a finder of fact would resolve these factual disputes. The finder of fact would conclude this party is correct, that party is incorrect, and make findings that would then drive
0: the legal result. So everything's set for trial, which is a relatively rare occurrence in these cases. Everyone thinks because of the drawn-out litigation that prior to the actual trial that there's going to be one because there's no way a settlement can be reached and then as has been the case there's another twist and just to remember at this point it's 2010
1: this dispute has been going on for over 12 years it started at christmas time 1997 and the parties uh, had engaged in a lot of discovery a lot of renewed motions on on previous theories but it's it's been quite a long time which is which is turns out not to be terribly unusual in these cases In the spring of 2010, Dr. Leopold passes away. Dr. Leopold was obviously the dominant personality in this dispute. The museum was his legacy. He was the director for life. He insisted he had a right to keep this painting and clearly felt very strongly about it. After he passes away, negotiations ensue, presumably, because right before the trial is set to begin, it is announced that the parties have reached a settlement.
0: So the Leopold Museum reaches a settlement with the Bondi heirs. What what happens?
1: The Leopold Museum and the Republic of Austria agree to pay the Bondi heirs in exchange for their releasing of their claim to Portrait of Wally so that it can return to Austria, which is what happened, and that's where it is today.
0: So the Leopold Museum still exists today. If you go there, is there any sort of indication of this painting's provenance on the wall text? I mean, that would... Let a viewer know that it was embroiled in a 13-year legal dispute.
1: Yes, it is hanging in the Leopold Museum, which is one of Vienna's most popular museums. It is next to the companion self-portrait that I mentioned earlier, which is how Schiele intended it to be displayed. Uh, there is a small label, it's somewhat understated, but it does acknowledge the role of the painting in this in this protracted dispute.
0: Yeah, I mean it's kind of an interesting conclusion because in some ways it's it's anticlimactic, but in other ways settling these Holocaust restitution cases can involve a give and take on both sides. What would you say the legacy of this case is today?
1: I think the legacy is it's one of, if not the first, high-profile cases. At the end of 1997, we're still a year away from the now well-known Washington Conference. We are well into the modern era of history and re-examining of a lot of these issues uh, in a way that's, that's attracted a lot of attention, uh, and had resulted in a few court cases, but this was on a scale that had really never happened, and it brings attention to the issue in a way that that endures today. I think the other legacy is just how difficult these things are to resolve, and there were bitter, bitter feelings on both sides of this case. When the painting returned to Vienna, I can tell you, having been there, there was a certain amount of triumphalism to its return uh, that was a little uncomfortable and
0: that these things are never easy well thanks nick so much for for joining us it's really been my pleasure thank you very much for having me and your book again is called a tragic fate law and ethics in the battle over nazi looted art anyone looking to understand the complexities and difficulties surrounding this topic should pick it up please remember to rate and subscribe to our podcast on itunes see you guys next time Our producer this week, editorial associate Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Broke for Free.